this is Give Me Some Truth, a podcast from Walkner Condon Financial Advisors in Madison, Wisconsin. Give Me Some Truth is dedicated to providing an accessible and authentic view into the financial services industry, as well as current events and investment concepts that you can apply in your day-to-day life. You gotta leave your money behind you. Welcome back to Give Me Some Truth. Got myself, Nate Condon, and Jonathan Jordan in the booth today. Newly minted golf swing, Jonathan Jordan, I will say. Spent some time with one Mr. Kaiser over at uh, Vitens. Johnny, what did uh, what did Mr. Kaiser have to say for you? Well, uh, first of all, you had to say, because uh, it was my first lesson ever in all the years that I've really? been golfing. Yeah, it was my wow. first lesson. He said, uh, there's a lot of things we need to cover after watching me swing a few times. Said, uh, I don't know if that's good or bad. Is that good? We're not going to be able to cover them all in this meeting. <laughs> I instantly could just see the cha-ching, cha-ching dollar signs going. But you know, he he was uh, he was able to actually show me with some new technology and video. Clearly, I was doing things wrong from where I needed to be, and just in the minor corrections that he made, you know, I got me uh, swinging and hitting the ball straight. Now, there's a few other things we got to work on, but I got to tell you, I'm pretty excited. Tested it out last week and had one of my best rounds in a long time. So it was, it was definitely helpful. Nice. So. Good, good. Well, the, uh, the folks that occupy Walkner Condon are not uh, afraid to chase a golf ball around once in a while. So it, uh, it should be a fun summer with uh, the, the uh, newly minted swing and the confidence. The confident golfer. Beware of the confident golfer. That's, uh, that's a good thing for anybody. I actually wrote down... The things I learned as well, because I found in the past, I learned a little tip or a trick on the course and, and then you forget it. Right. But, but yeah, I wrote things, some things down and some things to work on. So I'm excited about it, but good, good. And this weekend, I, I, I know we were chatting and, and you mentioned that, uh, you said, I think I have a good podcast idea. So, uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. So what, what was it that got you thinking about today's topic? Yes. Yeah, so I was doing a little reading over the weekend and, and I uh, came across a few different articles, um, which kind of were circling around an idea that I had for a little while on a podcast, which is um, some some kind of common and um, readily accepted pieces of personal information or, or uh, financial tips that are kind of taken to be gospel truth when actually they are really bad advice. And so it, uh, it actually becomes a... Uh, um, kind of a double-edged sword because you're uh, you're thinking you're doing the right thing by following the advice, and not only are you not getting the correct outcome, you're actually getting a worse outcome than if you had never followed the advice um, in and of itself. So we just want to tick through a few of these. Um, John and I are just going to kind of bounce back and forth, and um, just kind of give you our comments and maybe even some uh, some personal stories of, of clients that that uh, uh, that we know that relate to some of these. Um, and we, uh, we hope that, uh, by the end of it, people will, uh, at least if, if nothing else, kind of think twice about some of the free, the free advice that they get, um, on either late night TV or, uh, some of the talking heads on TV. So one popular one that comes up is save 10% of your income for retirement. John, why is that maybe not the best advice in the world? Well, I, I tend to think of these as, you know, they're kind of things that get as rules of thumb or, you know, you hear this is that all people should do it this way. But one of the reasons why this, you know, sound advice of we should be saving, you know, but putting a specific percentage on it, say 10% for many investors or people that are serious about their retirement, they can put themselves in a bad situation by just sticking with that and not actually looking at what the numbers are going to take for them to hit a specific goal. 
So say you have somebody earning $40,000 a year and they're saving 10% of their pre-tax income, it's $4,000. And they start looking at how many years it takes for them to get to a goal, even investing it and getting a you know an annualized rate of return of 7.2% may not be enough for what their goals are. Now, we also factor in that, you know, we would get pay increases and things like that, but just saying 10% would leave them short of their goal. Now, on the flip side, you also could have somebody that's earning a considerable amount, say a quarter million dollars a year. And for them, for their goals, for the lifestyle that they lead, um, if they said, I'm only going to save 10% of their income, say it was a husband and a wife joint uh, working, they may not be taking advantage of all the tax benefits of both of them being able to put $19,000 away into a 401k if they're eligible for that type of a plan, or even potentially catch up contributions as they hit age 50. So so you have both sides of it where the 10% rule of thumb or you know this is what you should be isn't actually correct for either one of them. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think really what this comes down to, and um, John and I agree on this for sure, is um, the idea of kind of locking something in and just assuming that you're good to go with that one thing or that one level for the rest of your life is really dangerous advice because it really has to do with a, what is the target we're trying to hit? You know, if somebody's saying I want to retire when I'm 55 and I want to have, um, you know, a hundred percent of my pre retirement or pre work optional lifestyle income, well, it's going to take in most cases a lot more than 10% savings rate. However, if somebody else says I want to work until I'm 75, 80 years old, well, they actually might not even need to save 10%. They could potentially even get away with saving less. So really it comes down to what are we trying to accomplish? And that's um, people that listen to the podcast have heard that many times um, from, from all of us before, which is, you know, if we're not working off of a financial plan, which helps us to understand uh, where we're trying to go, then just randomly picking a percentage and trying to set that in for the rest of our lives is akin to saying, if I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to drive across the country, as long as I drive uh, 60 miles an hour the entire way, I'm going to be good to go. Well, yep. right. and, and, and to be certain, we, we, we don't believe that anybody out there that is just saving 10% is doing a bad thing because saving right. is exactly. important. But it may not be the best advice for what you are trying to accomplish. And that's why working you know, together with a planner or really sitting down and looking at, at what it's going to take for you to accomplish that goal is the, the paramount, most important part of that. Now, the thing about saving is, is that it's actually really a bill. And the thing that you're buying is your retirement. You're buying your ability to have retirement income to be able to meet your needs. And, and ultimately, you know, paying yourself first and making sure you save is, is the, the best way for you to get there and, and really calculating out what's the right percentage and the best way to take advantage of tax breaks and, and, uh, and those sort of loopholes for you uh, is the best way to go about it. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, let's jump into the second one. So they, uh, or, or, or another one that we've at least come across that, that we've heard quite a bit. Um, we use this a lot in, in kind of predicting how much people will need for, for retirement, but there's kind of rules of thumb that we use within the industry of, you know, you can take X percentage of a withdrawal rate off of your income or off of your, excuse me, off of your assets, not off your income, off of your assets to give you a retirement income. For example, if you have a million dollars, you know, the simple rule of thumb would be you can draw 5% per year off that, $50,000 a year is what you can draw, and therefore you're good to go um, at that withdrawal level for the rest of your life. John, why is that maybe not the best advice? Well, the 
the, the rule that the number that I've heard many times, I've talked to clients about this, that they've heard, well, I'm just going to take 4% once I retire. And the 4% rule, you know, I'll never run out of money or it'll, it'll outlive, my money will outlive me. But there's a couple of reasons why that may not be the best rule of thumb. First of all, is it's been shown that the 4% rule doesn't work uh, long term for clients unless they have substantial assets saved up and very low income needs in retirement. But if you factor in the social security benefit that you have and looking at taking 4%, inflation alone on an inflation adjusted return could force you to have your money invested at a higher risk number than what you would need and potentially put some of your principal at risk, that that principal that produces the income, which is like the milk from the cow. And if each year that amount that you take out needs to go a little bit higher because of inflation, you may not be able to earn the commensurate return that you need to get there. The secondary thing is that we're living longer. And so when that 4% rule, you know, was really talked about and, and you start to see over time, even the table that they use for calculating required minimum distributions doesn't start out at 4% the first year. It starts out under 3%. So, and then all the way up until around age 73, and then you start to see it go up a little bit over 4%. But the best percentage of what we should be looking to take in income is whatever it takes to get a dollar more than what you need to spend on your living expenses, minus any pensions or social security that you would have. So just staying that you're going to take 4% and almost create your own little uh, annuity and say, I just need to get to my number. And I used to see this old ING commercial where he'd say, what's your number? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah the Nest Egg one. Yeah, you're walking around yeah, with a right. number over your head like, right. oh, my number is $2,183,172. Well, you know, just calculating and getting a number that monetizes that number to tell you what your income is, but it's not taking into consideration inflation. It's not taking into consideration things that could come up in your life that are higher cost, like long-term care needs. Um, higher cost of medical insurance uh, when you when you get older because you're on medicines, things like that. So really looking for how much should we be saving and what should the withdrawal rate should really be about what your needs are going to be and what your goals are. So again, taking it back to the plan is really the most important way to dictate. 4% might not be enough for some people too. Well, so. yeah, it's a good point. Hey, what you're seeing as a theme here is that we reject a lot of these um, kind of garden variety, you know, one size fits all. This is a, this is a, a uh, piece of advice that everybody can work off of and, and it benefits them. That's, that's just not the case. We're all different. We all uh, behave differently. We all see the world differently. We're all unique people. And so if you if you are following kind of these generalized rules of thumb, something to read on the internet or in a, in a magazine, I mean, obviously you're not the only one reading that. So therefore, you know, it's designed to try to be a blanket piece of advice for everybody. It's just not the best way to handle something that's important as money and, uh, and your retirement. So... Um, what's a, uh, what's another one that we hear, John, about, um, you know, kind of buying versus renting a house? Uh, the, 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 uh, the talking heads will have you believe that if you, uh, if you rent, you're foolish and you are smart if you buy in every case. Well, the, the thing I've heard, and I've heard this in my 11 years in this business a lot, is I, I need to own a home. This is going to add to my right. net worth. It's the best investment I could make, and I'm tired of wasting my money on rent. And, you know, I always bring it back and ask the question of, like, what's the purpose of where you're living? It's a use asset. So oftentimes, especially younger people, they feel the pressure to own. Maybe their parents who have owned a home tell them, you need to own a home. But 
you know, renting actually buys you flexibility. When you buy the home, you do get some benefits from that, whether it's, you know, tax breaks from the interest, mortgage interest that you pay, from the fact that you own it, you can, you know, you have the benefit that you can choose, you know, what the colors of the wall are, or you can choose what you want your landscaping to be. But the flexibility that you lose comes financially from the fact that you now own that asset. And if something changes in your life quickly and you needed to sell that asset, you're really at the whim of what the market is. I know, Nate, you've got a background in real estate and, and have seen this. And, and I know 2008, I know some people that, that bought homes in 06 and 07. 2008 came and that really hit the housing market quickly and people lost jobs. And suddenly they needed to find jobs and they needed to relocate for it. And they were shocked to find out when they went to list their house that they needed to come with checks, sometimes over $100,000 to the table to be able to sell their house because they were underwater. You see, it's an asset that you own and the value of the asset, the day you need to sell it is what it's truly worth, not what you paid for it. Not what the city assessor's office tells you that it's worth for tax purposes. It's what someone's willing to pay you. And by the way, you probably need to knock around 6% off because of the real estate fees because the seller pays those you know, at least six, unless you can find a deal. But, you know, that's a, on, a, on a several hundred thousand dollar to half a million dollar purchase is a sizable number that even if you broke even on the house over that short period of time, whereas in renting would have given you the flexibility to then, you know, terminate your lease or finish it out, a lot less money you got to bring to the table. So everybody has to really analyze their situation and where the market's at. Yeah, my dad and I have gone around and around in this conversation, and I'm not against home ownership by any means. I think it, it, it's a, uh, for most people, I think it makes uh, you know sense. But it, it, again, the, the devil's in the details, like with a lot of things. And so it's the definition of success or what makes sense, right? So what is that definition for some people? And and if it's somebody's looking at it saying, well, it's for sure a good investment. Okay, well, that's different than whether or not it makes sense. We all have to live somewhere. and We all have to pay costs for a living. So it makes sense in a lot of cases to own a home. But we shouldn't immediately uh, jump to therefore or it then makes sense as an investment. And I think that that's where people start to get themselves into, into trouble as they look at their house as an investment and then they start to make investment based decisions on their house. Like I'm going to do X, Y, or Z to my house to increase the value of it because it'll increase this investment. So again, we're not saying don't own a home. We're not saying we're against home ownership. What we're saying is um, really analyze what makes the most sense for you um, and don't just um, buy a house or jump you know, into that level of decision just because your friends are doing it or your parents are doing it or um, you know, the, uh, um, you know, the, the, the conventional wisdom tells you that everybody should own a home that that's not necessarily the case. And for us, uh, it comes down to, uh, the, the same, the central theme that we've had in this podcast, which is, is it right for you specifically? And, and if, if you're not sure, come and seek out somebody like us. Yeah. And there's, there's a couple of things that we would say that are important if you are making that decision. And first of all, come chat with us about it, but make sure that you've got at least some money down. Recommended is usually about 20%. I know there are some mortgage lenders out there that'll lend more than 80% of what the home purchase price is, but we, we recommend 20%, 20 to 30 really, for you to have equity in there. And also to make sure that you're not exceeding 30% of what your, your take-home income is on just your housing, because you have other things to spend on as well. And you don't want to miss a mortgage payment. It's something that can 
very quickly ruin your credit if you start getting behind in mortgage payments. Uh, the bank definitely wants their, their money and they've got the lien on the house. Um, and also one other thing that you, you probably should make sure of is you've got an emergency fund. Whereas if you did have a job loss for a number of months that you would still be able to continue to make those important mortgage payments and some other, you know, you'd, you'd strip your lifestyle down, but be able to make the important payments of things that you need for your regular living expenses. So. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why renting makes sense. And so don't don't shortchange that idea or don't let somebody talk you out of that idea. Um, because as, as John alluded to, the flexibility of renting, generally the rent payment is lower than a mortgage payment. Um, and your, your, your ability to buy yourself some time. If you're not quite sure that this is the area you want to be in, this is the city you want to live in, this is the right job for you that you currently have. If you have question or indecision in those areas, renting is a great option until you have more certainty in your life. And unlike a retirement account that you can, you know, maybe take more risk on and say, I'm, I'm putting more money in there, uh, for long term, you're not touching that generally for you know, decades down, could be 20, 30 years from when you're going to be touching that money. And so many things change in our lives. And if you look at the statistics, people switch jobs five to seven times, you know, now and often are not going to be in the same town that you're in. And so just knowing those facts going in can help you to, to make a sound decision on it. So and I, I know debt is an important topic. And this kind of last one that we're chatting about is one that I've gone round and round with clients before. I've gone around and around with friends, just sitting around at a coffee shop, just talking about the idea of paying down debt and how that should always be the number one priority because we need to have a debt-free life and debt is bad. And I'm here to tell you that I, I agree that debt is bad. You know, credit card debt is bad. You don't want to be accumulating that up and spending money you don't have. You know, it takes you back to one of my favorite Saturday Night Live skits, you know, where Steve, uh, Steve Martins is in there and he's talking and, and he's talking to his wife and they're like, you know, we, we really want to go on this vacation, but we don't have any money, but we have these credit cards. Should we buy it? And the guy's standing behind him and he's like, no, you shouldn't. You don't have any money. <laughs> See, I wrote a real book for you. It's, you know, it's like, the, yeah, if you don't have any money, you shouldn't buy it. Right. So, and he just kept going over. But everybody says that, you know, that, but I can, they're telling me that I have $20,000 to spend. Just because we have that purchasing power, if we don't have the money to pay it back, you accumulate up debt um, at high interest rates. But student loans, right. um, mortgages, right. if you get the right interest rate and the right terms on it, you know, those are things that you're investing in to be able to have a better career potentially or be able to make more income. That's not always a bad debt. And paying it off so fast with low interest rates and the fact that you get a non-itemized tax credit for, or, you know, or, or it, you can you can write it off on your taxes for your student loan interest as well as your mortgage interest. It does have a residual benefit there as well. So, but I, I, I don't know how you feel about it, Nate, but I've always felt like there are leverages out there that you can have. Um, say in a mortgage uh, that could be a benefit to you, especially if you if you want to purchase a home, but then you know you're going to stay there for a while, it can be a benefit. Yeah, and I think that word is is, is the correct word to use is leverage, right? And so um, we most people don't have or not are not able uh, to save the amount of money that it would take to buy a house outright, right? You're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars that that becomes very um, you know, counter to what most people are, are able to do and what they're able to save. So you have to use debt in life. Uh, if in some cases, if you, if you want to kind of get bigger ticket items, if you want to buy a business, if you want to buy a house, if you want to buy even a car in a lot of cases, you know, it becomes very difficult if we're trying to save every dollar 
um, and buy it outright. So smart use of debt so that it leverages our ability to be able to acquire something that we wouldn't have been able to acquire on our own and potentially use that thing to forward our lives, right? So you better have a good point, student loans, right? Student loans bought you what? What bought you an education? And an education, a lot of times, leads to what? Leads to a better job, leads to more income. So the outcome of this debt was that I was able to lever myself into a higher position and therefore, without that, I wouldn't have been able to get there, right? Yeah, and that's why we don't we don't advise our clients in all situations to pay down those debts that are good leverages at a faster rate than than necessary. And I've seen, you know, everybody's got a, well, this is the way to pay down your house faster, and you should invest in whole life, you know, insurance and use that, borrow out of it to pay your your mortgage off faster. Do all these? There's all sorts of people out there that'll tell you this stuff, and I, I'm here to tell you if that was the best way to do it, everybody'd be doing it. Yeah, it's a good idea. Don't take rules or uh, financial advice from people at one in the morning on TV. Right? Exactly. I mean, is that, that's a pretty good. If there's a one eight hundred number where you can order their book, that's probably not a book you want to buy, read, or yeah. or advice you want to follow. But but there there are people out there that have and, and they. They, they lay it out. It makes so much sense. But when we really look at it, there's there's a reason why we have the ability to borrow money. We have our credit scores that we build up and you have the ability to use leverage. It's a good idea to pay down your debts, especially if they're accumulating up and the interest rate is higher than what you can get investing it towards a goal. The best thing to do is not accumulate up those debts in the first place. So if anybody ever calls me up, that's a client and says, hey, I've got, I want to purchase this and I don't have the money for it. I'm going to just probably send them that Saturday Night Live book and say, if you don't have the money, don't buy it. Yeah, right. It's a 51-50 rule, right? Yeah. It costs $51 and you have 50 bucks in yep. your pocket. You know, you want to think real hard, long and hard about buying it. I think that, I think you're right. It, it comes back to the idea of planning and, and even more specifically, the question we get on debt a lot is, should I invest this extra money I have or should I pay it off on debt? And that really starts to get into a personalized conversation. And so if you've thought about that or if that's something that's kind of banging around in your head, that's absolutely something that you should have a conversation with a financial advisor about before making a final decision. Yeah, and the real purpose of even in this podcast so that, that our listeners and our clients and people out there that uh, follow us on Give Me Some Truth Understand is that there are these these rules of thumb or conventional wisdom that you we've heard over the years. And it's not that in any situation that's bad advice. It just might not be the best advice for what your situation is. And and I've kind of got a bonus one for you, Nate, before you wrap up here, because I know that, uh, you know, I was told always, you know, you're, you're looking at a car, a car is not an investment and because it, it devalues. I mean, as soon as you drive it off the lot. And so my first car that I bought, my mom, who's very smart with money. Um, I think this is probably the first way that I ever earned her trust in life was that knew that I was going to be a good financial advisor is I argued with her that the car that I was buying for $1,100 cash was a really good investment. And she said, it's a terrible investment. <laughs> it's devaluing. You're wasting your money. It's $1,100. You're probably going to need to fix it up and everything. But my argument was founded in the this situation. I didn't have a car. And so I had to walk a mile to a restaurant I was serving at and I had the opportunity to get hired at Outback Steakhouse, which at the time was booming and was like, you're making a couple hundred bucks a night instead of, you know, $40 on a shift. And the car would be able to get me there. But it was four miles away. There was no way I could walk to there. Right. So, so my, my argument was is that the car was the investment for me to be able to make the money. And in that situation, um, you know, she, she agreed after the summer where I made a lot more money and was able to actually contribute and help out with some things for college. That, that I was I was right 
Not that the car was an investment because the actual <laughs> car went down in value. Um, what she pointed out to me though later was when I tried to drive it home that winter at Christmas that in the snowstorm, it probably wasn't going to hold up well, but I really wanted to get home on Christmas Eve. So uh, I had to, I had to like limp home after I slid off the side of the road and hit a, hit a sign and I got home and the whole, it was accordioned in, in the front and basically worth nothing now. I mean, I think I had to pay $50 to have it hauled. Yeah. And she pointed out to me there, you might've been right that that was an investment, but I was right that you shouldn't have driven home. Well, so, uh, right. Mom and, was and, right. You know, I mean, you, you're not getting far arguing yep. with your mom anyways, you know, in nope, a situation nope. like that. But I think that's a great point. And we'll wrap up on that, which is, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. You use that to lever your situation into a better spot and you used you used that thing to be able to kind of get you into a more positive spot in life, uh, you know, financially to earn more money. And, and that's, those are the areas that we think that can make a lot of sense. Um, but even so, uh, it should be done with uh, um, at, at least balancing the idea off of, um, you know, your advisor, because at the end of the day, um, they might have a perspective on it that you haven't thought about. But we'll come back with more of these myths. I think, these are, I think this is a fun topic. And if you have any that you want us to kind of run through, please don't hesitate to uh, pass that information on to us because we'd love to tackle um, some, some thoughts or some myths from, from the listeners if they have those uh, and want to hear our thoughts on them. So uh, until next time, thanks for joining us. you got to leave your money behind you. Raise your hand to the sky. Advisory services are offered through Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Clint Walkner, Nate Condon, Jonathan Jordan, Mitch DeWitt, and Keith Ponywaz are investment advisor representatives of Walkner Condon. Guests on the podcast are not registered, and their participation in the podcast are limited to unregistered activities and will not provide any advice that is investment-related, nor should any comments that guests make be construed as giving investment advice. Content should not be viewed as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned or as legal or tax advice. You should always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC, is not engaged in the practice of law. Whenever you invest, you are at risk of loss of principal as the market does fluctuate. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Purchases are subject to suitability. This requires a review of an investor's objective, risk tolerance, and time horizon. Investing always involves risk and possible loss of capital. Long-term care, estate planning, insurance products, and tax advice are not offered through Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC. Walkner Condon works on a best efforts basis and does not guarantee any results. Past performance does not represent future results. Please see walknercondon.com for additional disclosures.